0: Okay, so uh, <coughs> thought we would um, maybe just start off this week with a, a, a resume of the story so far in the uh, paper I've handed out, but I just want to go over it because I think it demonstrates the, the, the sort of interesting way in which Marx constructs his argument and, and tells us something about his way of his way of thinking. As, You'll recall, and you probably get tired of this in the initial stages, Marx started with the commodity, which is a unitary concept. Uh, but he then says there's a differentiation within that unity, and that differentiation is around use value and exchange value. And then... He argued that the commensurability of all of those different kinds of use values had to be located somewhere, so he locates the commensurability in labour, and in particular labour value, labour values or socially necessary labour time, and obviously the labour time expended on something was irrelevant if it was not a use value, so he links it back to, to use value. So he did this. Then, the next step is to ask some questions about labor, and so we get this discussion of the difference between concrete labor, the actual making of use values, and the abstract labor. So the abstract and concrete is then discussed as these work in relationship to each other, and of course these two elements come together in the moment of exchange when a form of value is arrived at. So we get a form of value which arises and then he subjects that to interrogation and comes up again with an internal differentiation between equivalent and relative forms of value which of course, at the end of the day, produce, or crystallizes out, a money form. And that money form is a representation of value, it's not value itself, it's a representation of this. So here we have the real thing and here we have the representation. And this then induces Marx to talk about Uh, the fetishism that arises out of this, so that we get uh, material relations between persons, which contrast with the social relation given by prices between things. And this, of course, then brings us back to the question of the market. How does the market work? How does market fetishism, how does the market hide social relations? So we come back into the kind of question of the market and exchange, and we look more concretely again at a bifurcation between buyers and between sellers. and again this relationship is is looked at and and clearly, in a complicated exchange economy, that relation has to be mediated through money. So we get the last link in this part. But then what Marx does is to say, well, we also have to look at money. So if we go back over here and say, okay, let's look at this continuation of this chain, what do we say about money? Well, money has, again, a dual aspect to it. Money is a measure of value and it is also a means of circulation. But then at the end of this, we get Marx saying but at the end of it there's only one kind of money and that's world money. So we have to look at the universal form of money, or or, or world money, and that universal form of money contains, again, a very interesting relationship between debtors and creditors. The only way this universal form of money can bridge this distinction between money as a means of circulation and as a measure of value is by there being a hoard, there being lending and, and debt. And, 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 you know, so, so this relationship emerges and out of this relationship that crystallizes the circulation process of capital. But that circulation process of capital presupposes that somebody's going to get more money at the end of the day than they started out with. And this then poses a contradiction between the equivalence of exchange and the non-equivalence of profit or surplus-value. How is that going to be resolved? That's going to be resolved by finding a commodity in the market that can bridge that problem. So we go to the buying and selling of labour-power. The commodity that can do this. Labour-power. The buying and selling of labour-power in the market allows capitalists to purchase a, co- a commodity that has the capacity to produce more value than it itself has. And of course what this does is, is to immediately introduce the whole kind of class relation between capital and labour. Now this, is Marx's method of representation. And one of the most important things to remember about it is this is not a causal chain. This is an expansion of an argument, starting with the unitary concept of the commodity, moving and expanding step by step by step. And his aim is, of course, to enlighten us as to the nature of a capitalist mode of production. So each one of these steps takes you a bit deeper inside of understanding how capitalism works. But you can see it's going to go on, in other words, it doesn't stop here, we've got class struggle, we have a huge bifurcation coming up, much of capital between absolute and relative surplus value, and then we start to turn this into a dynamic. Now, this is, if you like, the way in which Marx is telling the story, or telling his story about how to understand capitalism. And like I say, it is an expansionary argument through a series of internal differentiations, new problem, more internal differentiations, and so the argument grows organically. It doesn't sort of building block on building block or causal bit by causal bit, it grows. And I think it's very interesting how well it grows. I mean, first time I kind of figured out this was what was going on, I found it, you know. Pretty convincing. I mean, after a while, this is very helpful to way to, to, to expand in this way. And it is a very distinctive method, which is partially reflective of his inquiry, but not entirely. It's partially reflective of the subject matter, but it's a technique it primarily it's a technique of representation. It's a way of communicating to an audience how to understand a capitalist mode of production. So you don't get into a language of causality and say it's caused by this or it's caused by that. You get into understanding it as a totality, as a unity. And as he says about it in various other places, we have to understand it as an organic system. And understanding it organically requires that we inquire into it and we represent it in this particular kind of way. Now, these are the steps that he's gone through in the first part, the first couple of parts of Capital, where he's mainly looking at the exchange process. But, as we now know, we're going to leave that noisy sphere where everything is sort of obvious, the world of equality, property, Bentham and all the rest of it, and we're going to go inside of the production process and look at what happens inside of production. Again, what you will find Marx doing is something a bit unusual in this chapter on the labour process. Almost invariably in the chapters before, he's talked about the categories saying, these are distinctively bourgeois categories. Labour value, for example, is a bourgeois category. It's not a universal category. Aristotle couldn't see it because, in a world of slave labour, the labour theory of value couldn't possibly work. So he couldn't see it. So the labour theory of value is a conceptual apparatus which arises out of the practices of the bourgeois era. And again and again he emphasises that the categories of political economy are the categories generated out of bourgeois practices. They're not universal categories, and should not be treated as universal categories common to all modes of production. But here he's going to make a very singular and important exception to that argument. And this was foretold earlier in Capital. Back on page 133, he says, Labor two-thirds of the way down, as the creator of use values as useful labour is a condition of human existence which is independent of all forms of society. It is an eternal natural necessity which mediates the metabolism between man and nature and therefore human life itself. Then he goes on a little bit further, say, "When man engages in production, he can only proceed as nature does herself, he can only change the change, he can only change the form of the materials and the like." Now, what he's doing in this chapter on the labor process, about the first 10 pages, is to talk about this universal condition of existence. We have to be very careful in reading this, not to read it through bourgeois categories. Bourgeois categories effectively separate, historically it was man and nature, nature and society, nature and culture, natural and artificial. But that is a bourgeois conception. And Marx, in setting up his argument about the labour process, is doing the same thing as he did with the commodity, he's treating it as a unity. And so the first question you have to ask yourself is, the labour process natural or social? And Marx's answer is, the labour process is the labour process. It's both. simultaneously. So we have to start from the proposition of a unity. That metabolic moment, which is always there, is where the labour process operates. And it is a naturally imposed necessity, we can't get away from it. We alter things around us in order to live. In so doing we develop all kinds of social ways and social aspects, but for Marx, in the first instance, we have to think of this in this unitary way. So he says, Labour is first of all a process between man and nature, a process by which man, through his own actions, mediates, regulates and controls the metabolism between himself and nature. And as he said in the preceding paragraph, we shall therefore have to consider the labour process independently of any specific social formation, independently of how it has evolved under capitalism. So he then describes, in very general terms, how he construes this labour process. He confronts the materials of nature as a force of nature, he sets in motion the natural forces which belong to his own body, his arms, legs, head and hands, in order to appropriate the materials of nature in a form adapted to his own needs. Through this movement he acts upon external nature and changes it, and in this way he simultaneously changes his own nature." A very dialectical proposition, which says, You cannot change yourself without changing the world around you. And you cannot change the world around you without simultaneously changing yourself. In other words, the unitariness of it, even though there is an opposition emerging, as with use-value and exchange-value, the unitariness of it can never, ever be displaced and that dialectic of changing oneself through changing the world, and vice versa, that dialectic is fundamental to how Marx sees the evolution of human society through transformations of nature. It would lead me to make very strong propositions of the sort that says Any ecological project is always a social project. All social projects are ecological projects. You cannot view them as somehow or other separate from each other. One of the big problems that's arisen in the bourgeois era has been precisely the way in which conceptually and also through practices and social institutions We've increasingly seen nature as something over there and society as something over here. And then we get into all kinds of crazy things, like trying to draw causal arrows from one to the others. Does nature cause human beings to do this? Do human beings cause nature to do that? Again, Marx would want to approach this in a unitary manner, an organic manner, to try to say, look, this world of the labour process, is wholly natural and wholly social at the same time. And it's transformative, and insofar as it's transformative, it's transformative of self and of society, and transformative of that other world we call nature. Through this movement, he goes on to say, he acts upon external nature and changes it, and in this way he simultaneously changes his own nature, he develops the potentialities slumbering within nature." This is Marx talking about the way in which we actually produce nature. We make a new nature, by what we do. Things happen there by virtue of what we do, in the same way the things happen there by virtue of what beavers do and ants do and all kinds of organisms do. He develops the potentialities then slumbering with nature and subjects the play of its forces to his own sovereign power. Sounds a bit Promethean, a bit… well, we could dominate it. But sovereign power, I think, here means that we can make decisions about this. We decide to do this or not to do this. And how we decide has crucial meaning. If we all decide to drive SUVs, we know what happens. to The carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere, we know those, those things, but we still decide to drive SUVs. If we decide not to drive SUVs, then maybe we would have a different kind of outcome. So, here we have, as it were, what Marx is talking about by kind of saying there is a sovereign moment, and we'll come back to that in a second. And he says we presuppose labour. He says in a form in which it is an exclusively human characteristic. Now, in his earlier writings Marx frequently appealed to an idea called species-being, which was about who we are as a species. What can we say about that? Almost certainly he took that idea from Kant, who also wrote at some length on the concept of species-being in his anthropology. it was there in Fuhrbach's anthropology as well. So the question is, are we different as a species from other species and if so, how? We know that ants are different from beavers and bees and all the rest of it. So what he does is this, he says, well, we have to recognize that all species are engaging in this process of production of nature, if you want to call it, that production transformative activities in their environment. But he says, what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is that the architect builds the cell in his mind before he constructs it in wax. At the end of every labour process a result emerges which had already been conceived by the worker at the beginning, hence already existed ideally, that is, mentally. Man not only affects change of form in the materials of nature, he also realises his own purpose in those materials. Human labour has, prior to its engagement, a certain level of mental calculation and purposive thinking. Now again, this seems to run against some of the other quotes you doubtless hear from Marx, which say things like, consciousness arises out of material activity. But here he's saying, the idea precedes the act. The purpose precedes the act. Now again, it's not hard to reconcile those two positions, if you're prepared to think dialectically rather than causally. An architect doesn't start from nothing. An architect starts from a particular situation, from a particular history, from a particular learning process, from a particular material world. So the imagination of the architect is brought to bear on a particular situation given the wealth of experience that's arisen out of a lifetime of activity, and a lifetime of learning and all the rest of it. So it's not as if the architect starts from nothing, the architect starts but there is this mental moment which is crucially important in the labour process the moment of conception, design, and we're going to see that moment frequently referred to in what follows. But that moment means nothing unless it is translated into something on the ground. There are plenty of architects around who dream all kinds of fantastic things, but Marx kind of says, well, that's irrelevant until you actually make it on the ground. And it is the making of it on the ground where you go from that materialist background, through the mental moment, into this labour process on the ground, that is crucial for how we work. He then goes on one step further. This is a purpose, he says, he is conscious of. It determines the mode of his activity with the rigidity of a law and he must subordinate his will to it. This subordination is no mere momentary act. Apart from the exertion of the working organs, a purposeful will is required for the entire duration of the work. This means close attention. The less is he attracted by the nature of the work and the way in which it is to be accomplished, and the less therefore he enjoys it as a free play of his own physical and mental powers, the closer his attention is forced to be. What he's attacking here is the Fourier view of work as play, pure play. Marx is kind of saying it's never pure play. When we get into a project, we find after a while the project starts to run us, we have to complete the project, we have to subordinate our will to it, and sometimes that can be a very tedious process. For those of you who envisage writing a thesis, you will know perfectly well what I'm talking about. The general law of that is it's ten percent inspiration and ninety percent perspiration. you know, you've only got to see anybody towards the end of their thesis, and they're groaning like crazy, kind of going, "This is absolutely weighing me down." How am I? Still happens to me when I write a book. I get into it, great idea. Six months on, well, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> towards the end, oh, what a lousy idea this was! Why can't I get out of it? You know, and it won't finish, and all this kind of stuff. So, Marx is, is, is if you like, a bit too dour to enjoy the Fourier conception that all work should be mere play, not only does he not think it is, he doesn't even think it ought to be. We have to accept that there's a certain discipline that goes with it, self-discipline, and that we cannot escape that. At the same time, I think this passage is very important in terms of its tone. There's something very positive about this, there's something even romantic about it. Marx is not averse to being romantic on occasion, that is, there is something noble about this enterprise. We can dream thoughts, we can make them real, we can transform the world, we can transform ourselves, we have this species capacity, We have these species' powers and as far as Marx is concerned, you don't feel guilty about using them. What you feel, however, is that once you get into them, you better stick with it because you just can't start on a project and then leave it. It's going to take discipline to do it. So this is, if you like, A foundational kind of argument. But again, notice it's a unitary argument. There's nothing specifically unnatural about this. Marx doesn't think we're being unnatural, because we do this. Any more than bees are being unnatural when they build hives and spiders' webs and ants' anthills and beavers' dams and all the rest of it. There's nothing unnatural about this at all. It is simultaneously both natural and social, but it is something which is very much unitary within our species. Now, Marx is not going to talk very much in Capital about the relation to nature and how it evolves in the bourgeois era. But actually, if you care to do the inferences yourself, you'll find he's actually saying quite a lot about it. In exactly the same way that this world of use-value and exchange-value, internal to the commodity, produces an antinomy, an antagonism, and then by the time you get to the money form, produces the possibility of real serious contradictions. So you can see the relation to nature evolving in the same way. There comes a point where there can, indeed, be environmental crises, and Marx in Capital, at a couple of points, will point to the possibility of those crises. But what we're going to see is an evolution of the labour process under capitalism which is going to take it in a very specific direction in which indeed this conceptual separation of nature from society is going to become very significant and is going to become antagonistic and that our practices are going to become so. So when we're reading about the evolution of the labour process, we might, might want to bear this in mind. Now what Marx then does is to give some general kinds of commentary on well, how this labour process works. And he gives a, a bit of an analysis of well, this purposeful activity, that is, the work itself, the object on which that work is performed, where does the universal material for human labour come from, and he gives some kind of examples about that, raw materials, materials drawn from nature, all the rest of it. Then he talks about the instruments of labour, which initially also are appropriations of nature, but which are turned, as he says on 285, nature becomes one of the organs of his activity, which he annexes to his own bodily organs, adding stature to himself in spite of the Bible. As the earth is his original laura, so too it is his original toolhouse. We take things and use them as tools, which then leads into the idea that, well, we do have a history of toolmaking. And he quotes Franklin on 286, and he obviously attributes great importance to this. And we are going to come back to it when he says. It is not what is made, but how, and by what instruments of labour, that distinguishes different economic epochs. Instruments of labour not only supply a standard of the degree of development which human labour has attained, but they also indicate the social relations within which men work." Again, there's going to be a tight relation, possibly antagonistic, between technologies and social relations. And what Marx is doing de- here is a laying down, again, something that is universal in human history, which is a complicated relationship between technological shifts and social relations. But we're not only dealing with tools, as he says bottom of the page, we're also dealing with all the infrastructures, many of which have been created through past labor. 287. Instruments of this kind, which have already been mediated through past labour, include workshops, canals, roads, (coughs) etc. Then comes a key paragraph. In the labour process, therefore, man's activity, via the instruments of labour, affects an alteration in the object of labour which was intended from the outset, The process is extinguished in the product. Now we've often talked about the way in which Marx is frequently coming back to the relationships between processes and things. Processes, objects. The product of the process is a use-value, a piece of natural material adapted to human needs by means of a change in its form. Labour has become bound up in its object. Labour has been objectified, the object has been worked on. What on the side of the worker appeared in the form of unrest, that is activity, now appears on the side of the product in the form of being, as a fixed immobile characteristic. The worker has spun and the product is a spinning. This process thing, And what is important, the process or the thing? Again, you have to think about the two, but for Marx, the labour process is what he wants to concentrate on, recognizing, of course, that value is objectified in the thing. Objectification is an inevitable aspect of this process. If we look at the whole process, he then says, from the point of view of its result, the product, it is plain that both the instruments and the object of labour are means of production, and that the labour itself is productive labour. So we then get that simple, simple distinction. But we then have <coughs> the problem of how do we understand past labour, because any object we see. All of the labour incorporated in it is past, as I take it to market. But how past is that past? And We have to deal with the fact that past labour is often involved, embodied in, the means of production which we then incorporate in the next stage of the labour process, which is then involved in the next stage of the labour process. So, this leads him to some reflections on how do we think about past labour. Since all labour is past, as soon as the object is produced, how do we think about that chain of past labours? Particularly when some of those past labours disappear in the process of the production. The past labour involved in mining the coal, which I then use as the power source to make the steel. The coal just disappears, it's not in the steel, it's disappeared. But it is still past labour, which is there in terms of its history, but not materially there. This is going to pose some very interesting accounting problems as we go on. And this, of course, leads him very much into the theme of there are a series of metamorphoses that occur within the labour process, steps. And each step something new is added, something new happens. So we have to think of it as a chain. We would now often talk about commodity chains and things of that kind, which is picking up on this idea. Then on 290, he introduces a very important distinction. He says, its material elements, its objects and its instruments, it consumes them and is therefore a process of consumption. Such productive consumption, that's the terminology, productive consumption, is distinguished from individual consumption by this, that the latter uses up products as a means of subsistence for the living individual, the former as means of subsistence for labour, for the activity through which the living individual's labour-power manifests itself. Thus the product of individual consumption is the consumer himself. The result of productive consumption is a product distinct from the consumer." This distinction between individual consumption and productive consumption, a use-value is going to disappear, Where does it disappear to? Where does it go to? Productive consumption, it continues to remain present somehow or other in the production process, either materially or in terms of the past labour embodied being continuously present. The bottom of 2.90, we get the summary statement. The labour process is purposeful activity aimed at the production of use-values. It is an appropriation of what exists in nature for the requirements of man. It is the universal condition for the metabolic interaction between man and nature, the everlasting nature-imposed condition of human existence, echoing what he said earlier. And it is therefore independent of every form of that existence or rather, it is common to all forms of society in which human beings live. We did not, therefore, have to present the worker in his relationship with other workers. It was enough to present man and his labour on one side, nature and its materials on the other. The taste of porridge does not tell us who grew the oats, and the process we have presented does not reveal the conditions under which it takes place, whether it is happening under the slave owner's brutal lash or the anxious eye of the capitalist whether Cincinnatus undertakes it in tilling his couple of acres, or a savage, when he lays low a wild beast with a stone." The labour process can be described in this metabolic way. But now we have to look at specifically how the labour process works under capitalism. So suddenly on 291, He turns around and says, let us now return to our would-be capitalist. The capitalist buys labour-power. Initially, the capitalist buys the labour-power that is found on the market, whatever that is. So we're not talking of a trained labour force, we're just talking about whatever happens to be there. buying labour-power, the capitalist sets that labour-power to work, and there are two conditions. First, the worker works under the control of the capitalist to whom his labour belongs. The contractual relation is this, I sell my labour-power to the capitalist. The capitalist takes that labour-power inside of the factory and says, your capacity to work now belongs to me, you're going to follow my instructions and do what I tell you in terms of labouring. That is a contractual condition. The second condition is this, the product is the property of the capitalist and not that of the worker, its immediate producer. Now this, of course, is an interesting violation of the Lockean view that private property arises out of the way in which people labour and embody their labour in the land and therefore that belongs to them. So the Lockean view is that private property and the rights to possess whatever it is one produces is crucial. But the rule here is not of that sort, completely different rule. He says, from the instant he steps into the workshop, the use-value of his labour-power, and therefore also its use which is labour, belongs to the capitalist. By the purchase of labour-power the capitalist incorporates labour as a living agent of fermentation, again this idea of labour as a form-giving fire, into the lifeless constituents of the product which also belong to him. So he consumes the labour-power, the capitalist consumes the labour-power and the means of production, and the product belongs to the capitalist. Which leads then to the second section, the valorization process. What is it the capitalist is looking for in that process of conjoining labour-power and means of production in the labour process? The capitalist, says Marx, wants to produce a commodity greater in value than the sum of the values of the commodities used to produce it, namely the means of production and the labour-power he purchased with his good money on the open market. His aim is to produce not only a use-value, but a commodity. Not only use-value, but value, and not just value, but also surplus-value. So the capitalist unites, as Marx put it, the labour process and the process of creating value in the process of production. So it's a new unity which the capitalist creates, internal to the factory. And what follows then is a discussion of how to understand the value which gets produced in that production process. And we first have to go through a consideration of all of the past labour incorporated in the means of production. And as he says, 294-295, all the labour contained in the yarn is past labour, and it is a matter of no importance that the labour expended to produce its constituent elements lies further back in the past than the labour expended on the final process, the spinning. Therefore he concludes, the labour contained in the raw materials and instruments of labour can be treated just as if they were labour expended in an earlier stage of the spinning process, before the labour finally added in the form of actual spinning. The same is true of machinery, spindles and all the rest of it. But again, we have a condition placed on this. That past labour has to be socially necessary past labour. The spindle has to be a spindle which is made in a socially necessary way. So he uses the example, well, if you have a gold spindle, that's tough. You're just going to have to work as if the the value you're going to work with is going to depend on the socially necessary labour time incorporated in spindles. So, the labour process then is put to work in this way, where you're taking past labour, the value of the past labour, and putting it to work. And the value is going to be the value which the labour adds to the value of that past labour which is incorporated in the means of production. But when we do a simple accounting on that, on 297, the bottom there goes to a little thing and kind of says, well, you know, you can go through the accounting this way and what you come up with is that there's no surplus value. Our capitalist stares in astonishment, the value of the product is equal to the value of the capital advanced. The value advanced has not been valorized, no surplus value has been created. And consequently, money has not been transformed into capital. So then the capitalist goes through a bunch of arguments. This is wrong. Consider first my abstinence. I abstained from having a good time, from consuming my money. I invested it. Don't I deserve some return for that? Isn't there some reason why I should? Shouldn't I get some more money just simply by virtue of my abstinence? And actually, the whole kind of argument about you know, Protestant ethic and abstinence and all that kind of stuff has a very important role to play in the whole history of how people thought about capitalism. Yeah, it was a return to abstinence. The second point he says well, I actually provide employment. Don't I deserve something for providing employment to people? I used to have this argument with my mother all the time, I'd say, let's abolish capitalists, and she'd say, well, who'd, who'd employ anybody if you didn't have any capitalists? And I'd say, well, there are plenty of other ways of doing it. No, no, we need the capitalists to employ people all the time. It's just you know, just They are very important. The more of them, the better, she'd say, and I drive me crazy, you know, impossible to get past that logic. And the third argument is, well, I worked. I worked hard, you know, I mean, it wasn't as if I sort of just sat there and put my feet up, I worked hard at actually setting up this production process, did all those kinds of things. Now, what we forget here is that actually, capitalists usually pay, pay themselves twice. To the degree they work, they pay themselves a managerial fee, they pay themselves as managers they then actually, in addition, take a rate of return on the capital they advanced. Now small entrepreneurs don't do that, they obviously merge that together. But certainly in big corporations you get this dual thing, you're getting a a fee and then you're getting something else on top of it. The easiest way to look at that is the difference between the management salary that a CEO gets, and what they get in the way of stock options. Which have a lot to do with you know, how much surplus-value you've managed to imagine you've created, even if you haven't done it, uh, in the short time you remain CEO. So the capitalist tries to pull all of these sorts of arguments together. Marx mocks all three of them and says, well, you know, they're not really serious arguments. So he then goes on to talk very explicitly on what happens. And the key passages are on 300 and 301. He says, let us examine the matter more closely. The value of a day's labour-power amounts to three shillings. Remember, the value of the labour-power is set by the value of the commodities needed to support the labourer at a given standard of living. And that's three shillings, in Marx's accounting. And that three shillings can be created through half a day's labour. And He says, the fact that half a day's labour is necessary to keep the worker alive during twenty-four hours, does not in any way prevent him from working a whole day. Therefore the value of labour-power and the value which that labour-power valorizes in the labour process are two entirely different magnitudes. And this difference was what the capitalist had in mind when he was purchasing the labour-power. The useful quality of labour-power, by virtue of which it makes yarn or boots, was to the capitalist merely the necessary condition for his activity. What was really decisive for him was the specific use-value which this commodity possesses, that's labour-power possesses, of being a source not only of value but of more value than it has itself. This is the specific service the capitalist expects from labour-power. In this transaction, he acts in accordance with the eternal laws of commodity exchange. In fact, the seller of labour-power, like the seller of any other commodity, realises its exchange value, and alienates its use value. Remember last time we mentioned labour is in this CMC circuit. The labourer sells the labour-power for the money in order to get the commodities to live. And there's no violation of that law of exchange. So, bottom of 301, Marx says, every condition of the problem is satisfied, while the laws governing exchange of commodities have not been violated in any way. Equivalent has been exchanged for equivalent. The capitalist as buyer paid the full value for each commodity, for the cotton, for the spindle, and for the labour-power. He then did what is done by every purchaser of commodities, he consumed their use-value. And then he goes through to actually refer back to a whole set of things that he's mentioned earlier. The whole course of events, the transformation of money into capital, both takes place and does not place, take place in the sphere of circulation. Remember the echo back, to page 269. Next passage he talks about the, its magical properties. Remember the goose that magically laid its own golden eggs? Well, here you see the secret of that how it is that value which can form its own valorization process appears as an animated monster, which begins to work as if its body were by love possessed." And this all happens because when you get the labourer's labour-power, you get it for a a time, and you set the labourer to work, and after three hours, or six hours, or whatever it is, they have reproduced the equivalent of their value, and you then work them for another six hours. That's your surplus value. Which is of course then going to lead into the question of, well, why don't people stop working after six hours? Well, there's going to be a class struggle over the working day, for the obvious reason that the capitalist wants them to work twelve hours, not six hours, And the other problem is that the way this is set up, it's become very difficult to see when that moment of reproduction of labour-power has been reached. So we've answered the question, where does the inequality come from? And So maybe that's a good point which we should break. Uh, The final point is that Marx is going to come back to the definition of socially necessary, and so he lays down these conditions on 303. Uh, The socially necessary means first the labour-power must be functioning under normal conditions, whatever those normal conditions happen to be. A further condition, he says, is that the labour-power itself must be of normal effectiveness. Uh, And uh, obviously this depends a lot on the particular trade you're in, But he then introduces something which I think is rather uh, important later on, but it slides in here. Uh, It must be expended with the average amount of exertion and the usual degree of intensity. Now, Marx hasn't used the term intensity much before, it's just occurred a couple of times, but you better watch out because it slides into the argument and becomes rather significant further on. And so the question of intensity uh, is, uh, is significant. And then, of course, he then introduces an idea that is going to be made much of later, when he talks about the way in which the capitalist has bought the use of the labour-power for a definite period, and he insists on his rights. So the question of rights comes in. He has no intention of being robbed. Lastly, and this was the purpose our friend has a penal code of his own. All wasteful consumption of raw material or instruments of labour is strictly forbidden. in 304, he, he, I think what he does is, is simply to say this, the production process, considered as the unity of the labour process and the process of creating value, is the process of production of commodities. Considered as the unity of the labour process and the process of valorization, it is the capitalist process of production, or the capitalist form of the production of commodities. So again, he's differentiating between the capitalist form of production of commodities and the particular kind of unity that is being established within that form, which is of course the unity of the labour process and the production of surplus-value. That is what this is all about. So the evolution of the labour process under capitalism is going to be very much about maintaining that unity, not simply that of production. Then he comes back to the whole kind of fraught issue of skills on 305, where he says, you know, we also have to figure that the labour process is employing people with different skills. What does skill mean? And he points out that actually a lot of these definitions are pretty arbitrary, and actually there's a long history of definition of skills, in which uh, the definition is, uh, has nothing to do with the actual nature of the labour process. For instance, in France in the nineteenth century, if women can do it, it was unskilled, by definition. Full stop. You know, I mean, So as soon as you introduce women into something, it became unskilled, which is why so many of the anarchists, like Proudhon, were anti-having women in the workshop deeply antagonistic to women's employment. So the the anarchist, uh, the Proudhon, women belonged at home, not in the workshop, and in fact the first international split on that question of whether women were welcome in the employment place or whether they were not. And the Proudhon anarchist wing said, no, they were not welcome. But that had a lot to do with the fact that the base of the Proudhon uh, movement was essentially skilled artisan, and they knew perfectly well that as soon as women got introduced into the workshop doing their jobs, their job would be called unskilled, and they 'd be seriously. So there was a kind of a social process of definition there, which was very important. So Marx mentions that a little bit of this when he talks. It depends in part on the helpless condition, this isn 't the footnote. Uh, he says the distinction between higher and simple labor rests in part on pure illusion. On distinctions that have long since ceased to be real, and part on the helpless condition of some sections of the working class. Um, but then there is this problem, however: of what do you do with a situation of highly productive, skilled labour, and how do we, in, you know, account for the way in which they work in the labour process? And obviously they. Uh, as as he says, this power of being of higher value, it expresses itself in labour of a higher sort, and therefore becomes objectified, during an equal amount of time, in proportionally higher values. That is, skilled labour is incorporating more value into a product than unskilled labour. This is the argument which is being made here. Uh, It doesn't affect the theory of surplus-value, but it it does affect the whole kind of calculus as to exactly how we understand the value of labour-power as it is both employed and as it is productive in the labour process. But Marx pushes by that whole argument at the end of this chapter, simply saying we save ourselves a superfluous operation and simplify our analysis by the assumption that the labour of the worker employed by the capitalist is average simple labour. So he's not going to concern himself with this problem any, anymore. Um, as I think I mentioned before, when this same issue cropped up in a slightly different context, in a slightly different way, this is a little bit of a problem in Marx's analysis, and some people have made uh, quite a bit of this as a weakness in Marx's analysis. So you may want to go look at that literature if you get very far into this uh, to this argument. Now the next two chapters are in a way simple enough in in in, in content, uh, and I don't think it's really necessary for me to spend too much time on them. He defines constant capital, and it's constant because it is past labour which has been incorporated in products prior to their incorporation in a particular labour process. The value of that labour, the value of the commodities, the value of the means of production is fixed. What happens to that value? Marx argues it gets transferred through the production process to the final product. So the total value of of all of those means of production which are used in the production process ends up coming out the other end as the same total value. It is constant, that's why he calls it constant capital. The value transfer the same amount of value comes out at the end as went in at the beginning. Now This poses some particular problems which he goes through in this chapter in some detail. Okay, This makes sense when we're looking at the cotton that ends up in the shirt. But what happens when we're dealing with the energy inputs? What happens when we're dealing with, with materials that disappear? What happens with machines that last a long time, say for ten years or something like that, what happens? Well, Marx is going to say there is a value transfer that goes on, even though there is no material transfer going on. The machine does not pass bits of itself on into the product, at least you hope it doesn't. Part of the machine gets passed onto the product. But at the end of the day, the machine is still there. So how much of the value of the machine gets passed on into the product? Well, Marx does a simple straight-line depreciation argument and says, well, if it's ten years, then one-tenth of the value of the machine passes on into the product every year. And you prorate that for the commodities. So that a little bit of the value of the machine ends up in the shoes or the shirts or whatever it is, for every shoe or shirt. So there is a value transfer going on here. Now, Again, this is interesting, this can only happen, of course, precisely because value is immaterial but objective. Remember that definition way back, value is immaterial but objective. Socially necessary labour time is a social relation, it has a social meaning and it, the means of its transfer is socially mandated. And it's mandated in this way, that the value of those inputs is incorporated into the output, the same value. Now, Marx is going to make a big deal of the fact that this transfer of value is given to the capitalist, free by the labourer. That if the labourer were not doing what the labourer is doing, the value incorporated in those means of production would be lost. If the machines were not used, the value incorporated in them would be lost. So what the labourer is doing is transferring value through productive consumption, remember the term, through productive consumption. That's what the labour is doing. And the reason Marx is making a a meal of this argument is precisely because you can see how much it empowers labour to know that if it goes on strike, if it stops the whole system, the transfer of value stops as well. The value embodied in the machinery that the capitalist has, which is supposed to last ten years and work for ten years, is going to be lost. In other words, part of what Marx is doing here is trying to work through an accounting system from the standpoint of the labourer, to say to the labourer, look at what you're doing. You are actually preserving their value. And of course you could start to make a counter-argument to the way the capitalist says, well, I'm giving you employment, by turning to the capitalist and saying, yeah, but I'm preserving your value. Shouldn't you be paying me a lot more to preserve your value? Without me you wouldn't preserve your value, you'd lose all your value. So Marx is going to talk about that as almost an accounting phenomenon, the way in which value gets transferred. Then of course, the labourer is essentially going to add value to the value of the means of production. So in effect what Marx is proposing here is a value-added theory of surplus-value production. And because it is adding value, he defines that capacity of adding value as variable capital and it's variable because it is increasing the amount of value. The labourer is working, incorporating more socially necessary labour time (coughs) into those existing or pre-existing raw materials, using the pre-existing machinery, and is adding value. So it's a value-added kind of idea that Marx is working with. And as the labourer adds value, they do reach this point, where the amount of value they have added to the product is equivalent to the value of their own labour-power. and As we've seen in the accounting that went before, that occurs after, say, six hours, three shillings' worth, or whatever the accounting is. So after six hours, the labourer has added enough value to cover their own costs of reproduction at a given standard of living, in a given society, at a given time, knowing what the value of labour-power is, in a given society, at a given time. But what the labourer then does is to add even more value, which Marx then says we call surplus-value. So the value of the product, at the end of the day, is going to be the addition of these three elements, constant capital, the value of that, variable capital, which is equivalent to the value of labour-power, and the surplus-value. And you have to think of that as being embodied in every single commodity. Every single commodity is made up of a C-element, a V-element and an S-element. and it is a continuous process of production. So what Marx does in this chapter then on constant and variable capital is to talk at some length about how value is transferred and the significance of that transfer and then how value is added. Which brings him then to the definition which he wants on 3.17 where he says, that part of capital, therefore, which is turned into means of production, i.e. the raw material, the auxiliary material and the instruments instruments of labour, does not undergo any quantitative alteration of value in the process of production. For this reason I call it the constant part of capital, or more briefly, constant capital." Then he goes on to say, on the other hand, that part of capital which is turned into labour-power does undergo an alteration of value in the process of production. I therefore call it the variable part of capital, or more briefly, variable capital. Now these definitions are going to be important in what follows. Constant, value, constant capital is not about the creation of value. Is not, cannot be, in Marx's accounting system. Immediately you'll see that machines cannot be a source of value. All machines do is to transfer value, their own value and the value of other things. Now, this creates some rather counterintuitive ideas. People often think machines are a source of value. If machines are not a source of value, why do capitalists invest in them? None of this means, of course, that variable capital and constant capital are not changing in value. It makes very clear that the value of the raw materials can be go yo yo up and down, depending upon conditions of labour in the, all those industries which are producing the raw materials or the machines. So to call it constant capital is not to say it's always constant, but to simply say it is constant insofar as it enters into the production process and comes out quantitatively the same. In chapter nine, what is after is very simple. What he's after, as he says on page 326, is an exact expression for the degree of exploitation of labour-power by capital, or of the worker by the capitalist. And he here plays around with these C plus V plus S categories and says, Well, what do these ratios look like? What, for example, does the ratio of C over V betoken? It's a ratio of the value of the raw materials which a given labourer, who is hired, can process. The higher this, the greater the level of productivity. Highly productive labourer will be moving a lot of C, with very little input of V. So there's some kind of measure of productivity which is involved in this. You then ask yourself the question, what is the relationship S over V? It's the amount of surplus in relationship and he has various ways of looking at this, the amount of surplus versus variable capital, but it can also be put in other terms. Necessary labour, i.e. the labour necessary to reproduce the labourer is v, surplus labour. And this is the rate of exploitation. Then there's something else, which is the rate of profit, which is the surplus over the total amount of capital advanced, which is C plus V. Which is higher, the rate of exploitation or the rate of profit? rate of exploitation. What does the capitalist always talk about? The rate of profit. So again, what Marx is trying to do here is to set up an accounting system which goes beyond the ways in which the bourgeois typically calculates and typically argues. You can be very highly exploited in a labor process. But the capitalist can have a low rate of profit. So when you go to the management and say, hey, I'm being highly exploited, I don't like this, you know, and the management says, well, just look at my rate of profit. It's very, very low. And if you're naive, you'll say, Oh yeah, I see, you're not making much out of this, are you? So oh, poor you. I'll work even harder, you know. Well Marx is saying you better watch out because you should really be looking at the rate of exploitation which is the amount of labor time socially necessary labor time which you are giving to the capitalist without remuneration Now there's some interesting elements here I suggested that capitalists may like to to cite the rate of profit, but in fact when they go to the bank to try to borrow money, what does the bank look at? It looks at the rate of profit. So actually, capitalists are likely to operate on the basis, they make their calculations on the basis of the rate of profit. They won't necessarily even be aware of the rate of exploitation. They certainly have no interest in calculating it. And the problem with the labour process, remember it's a, it's a process which is being objectified in things, so at the end of the day you've got a bunch of things there which have C plus V plus S embodied in them little elements and it's a continuous process so it becomes actually impossible and this again is the fetish argument right it becomes impossible for the worker to know at what point they have done enough adding of socially necessary labour time to be equivalent to their wage. And if there was a little bell that went off, you know, after six hours, went bang, now you've done, from now on you're working free for the capitalist, uh, imagine how the labour process would look like, imagine how social relations would look. And of course it doesn't work that way anyway, because we're looking at a continuous labour process. And while Marx is giving us this calculation in terms of days, it can also apply in terms of hours or minutes. It's a continuous process, (coughs) making things. So this rate of surplus value then, is what animates Marx in thinking about how the laborer should think of their situation which then leads him to you know various ways in which Those representations can occur, and then this uh, wonderful section three, senior's last hour, when one fine morning in the year 1836, Nassau W. Senior, who may be called the cloron of the English economists, a man famed, both for his economic science and his beautiful style, was summoned from Oxford to Manchester to learn in the latter place the political economy he taught in the former. Now, what Senior argued was this. Senior argued that actually what the worker had to do for the first ten hours of the day was to reproduce fully the value of the means of production. In other words, Senior had no concept of the worker transferring value in the production process senior said, well, if the means of production cost this, then the worker has to be put to work and actually has to labour all over again to make those means of production all over again. So the first ten hours are taken up with that. The next hour is taken up with reproducing the labourer, and the final hour is the surplus, therefore you had to have a twelve-hour day. And if you went to an eleven-hour day, this surplus would disappear. There would be no surplus, poor capitalists. No surplus, no profit. So he made the argument, and the manufacturers were making the argument in Manchester that their profit all came from hour eleven to twelve. And that therefore, under no circumstances, would it be possible to remain in business and reduce the length of the working day?" And Senior went through, as Marx dissects, deconstructs avidly, all the stupidities of his argument, and the professor calls this analysis. I feel like going into a bourgeois economics class and saying that on several occasions. You call this an analysis? So, Senior's last hour was just Marx deconstructing a, a vulgar economic argument uh, along these lines. But notice, again, what he's doing here is also exposing the sorts of logic which capitalists would. Frequently resort to. I abstain from consumption. Don't I re- deserve some remuneration from that? I provide employment. I do all of these. I, I, I work at what I do. And the way I work is. I'm desperately concerned to get that profit, and that profit comes out of this twelfth hour. But at the same time you will see there's a certain confirmation that comes from senior, of Marx's argument. That indeed it is the capitalist command of time, and the worker's time, which is absolutely crucial. you can't make a profit unless, as a capitalist, you command the worker's time. And that therefore there's going to be class struggle over the worker's time and how that time is used. And remember here also the way in which intensity has been introduced, because part of that command over time is to command the intensity of the labour process. And if you can up the intensity of the labour process, you're going to get a lot more value produced. So in all these ways we can see Marx setting the stage for saying "Yeah." value is socially necessary labour time. Profit comes from surplus value, which is surplus labour time, the surplus labour time of the worker, over and above the necessary labour time they use in order to reproduce their own value. So suddenly this becomes all about time and temporality, and capitalist concern with temporality and command over temporality. So not only does the, the capitalist have to command the labour process, determine what it is the labourer will do, not only must the capitalist command the product, they're also going to have to command the time of the labourer. and That becomes crucial, because without command of that time, no surplus-value, no profit. And in a funny kind of way, Senior recognizes that and makes this hokey argument, but nevertheless recognizes in that argument the crucial aspect of temporality to the way in which capitalism works. And again, one of the elements which is involved here in this temporality is going to be also carried over into that metabolic moment the relation to nature. we all of us, I think, would recognize one of the big problems of capitalism is the way in which decisions are made short-term. Long-term decisions are much harder to make. And the shorter the term of the decision, the better for the capitalist. Which means that if you're exploiting a natural resource or something of that kind, what do you do? You exploit it to the hilt, on a short-term basis. So the short-termism is also going to be built in, so you can build, at the same time as you see what the capitalist is going to do to the labourer, you can also start to think about what the capitalist is going to do in relationship to natural resources and that metabolic relation to nature how is that metabolic relation to nature going to evolve? What is its evolution going to look like? And again, what you start to see here is Marx looking at that unity that we started off with in the chapter on the labour process, that metabolic moment, where the social and the natural, and you start to look and think about how that begins to evolve under the pressures of this temporality which Marx will quote later on, that moments are the elements of profit. And if moments are the elements of profit, then the capitalist is very concerned to capture every moment in the labour process. Which is going to take us then into the next chapters on the working day. Okay, we've covered a lot, so let's have some time here for some general discussion. Yeah? How does Marx account for his ability to see these things that other economists of this time couldn't see? I don't know (laughs) how he accounts for that. I think that I think I think two things probably come into play most of all. Uh, firstly, his conscious decision to situate himself and look at this system from the perspective of the worker and the working class. So there's a what we would now call a situated knowledge decision here. So I think partly it's looking at it from that perspective. Uh, The other, I think, comes from what I initially talked about, which is the way in which he uses, for instance, notions of French socialist utopianism, mainly French socialist utopianism, German critical philosophy and English political economy to try to figure out what what the holes are in English political economy. And sometimes it's very easy to pick the holes, as he does with senior. Other times it's not so easy, it's not so easy to do it with Ricardo. And he's very admiring of Ricardo and and that, but sees clearly that Ricardo still has these problems about the labour theory of value without knowing what socially necessary really meant. And again, what we see here is something which is important. when the, when the capitalist establishes that unity between the labour process and the production of surplus-value, as being the core of what they're about, and it has to be the core of what they're about, because that's the only way they can assure themselves of that. When they establish themselves that way, they start to make decisions on that basis, and the whole system gets moved towards. A different kind of operational structure, as a result of that conscious move on the part of the capitalist. We're after surplus value. That's what we want. So it, I think it partly comes from, from like I say, the sit- his, his choice of situatedness, the anti-capitalism, the situated situation of the worker, and then, if you like, the general, the general critical analysis he was attempting to establish, to, and, 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 and a scientific, I think a scientific urge to try and understand capitalism as a, t- as a working totality. And he never shies away from that. You know, These days we're not supposed to talk about totalities anymore, apparently it's reactionary, but he takes a view that you've got to understand the capitalist mode of production as a totality. And you have to understand it in an organic system, and you have to understand the elements as these, as these come together, so he also has that scientific mission to understand it as an organic totality. Uh, there's no class next week, it's Columbus Day, right? Is that right? <laughs> what did Columbus do? Did he? <laughs> he, was, he, was one of, he was one of the worst geographers who ever existed. <laughs> he landed a place he didn't know where he was, he went into an environment he had no idea what it what constituted. In a population that he had no idea how to deal with, he was one of the worst geographical wreckers there's ever been, you know. And yet he's somehow or other held up as the great example of a great geographer. It's kind of credible. Anyway, note class next week. Uh, the week after we're going to do the chapter on the working day, which is a long empirical chapter. Uh, and then. The chapter following that, so that's chapter ten and chapter eleven, which is the rate and mass of surplus value. So chapters ten and eleven, and we'll meet in two weeks' time, so you'll have plenty of time to ruminate on the working day, with the help of Columbus and others.